Welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. Uh, you fucking tribal little monkey that thinks that your opinions about either politics or religion or what the fuck COVID is is in any way a clear reflection of what's happening in the world because you've been designed to think about it tribally so that you can use it as a weapon in conversation. <sighs> Me too. Uh, today, our podcast is a part one of a two-part series. Uh, my boy, Stephen Jaggers. Now officially, you'll find out in the podcast, is known as Jaggers now. Um, he came to visit Austin, and he and I first connected last year at a Fit for Service Summit where he was one of the facilitators for an incredibly powerful breathwork ceremony. And he's a body worker, and he did body work on me before this first part and it is the most intense bodywork session that I've ever done in my life. And it's because he's as in trauma informed as he is that you will realize uh, by listening to this podcast. But essentially, he put me through this process where he had me do a type of holotropic breath work, which for you people who know, that's one of the fastest ways to actually move into a trauma state in your nervous system and then actually allows you to purge whatever energy is stuck there and that Stanislav Grof has created an entire career on using holotropic breath work to help groups of people process and heal trauma but so he had me do that type of breath work and then he started digging into my fucking flesh in a way that if someone in he dug into my flesh in a way that an animal is programmed that if they feel that you have to fucking kill the thing that's doing that to you. And I was fucking paying him to do that. And I could feel that my nervous system was actually beginning to go into a stress response or into a trauma response. I could feel that I was starting to sweat. I could feel that I was starting to kind of feel sick to my stomach. I was starting to feel the edges of my legs and my hands going numb. And we even got to a point where I essentially um, like passively hinted at him that he should stop. And he had the confidence and the competence and the honed aggression to essentially say, this is exactly where your edge is. And if you trust me and you can move through it, you're gonna have some really good results. And so I trusted him. And he ended up putting my sh right shoulder, which I got surgery on 12 years ago, into a position that terrifies me. And then he had me um, essentially pull on his arm to activate the muscles in my shoulder in that compromised position. And I had a full trauma release of the muscles around my shoulder that had had surgery put through them. The dude's motherfucking legit. And uh, he and I really feel like brothers in the sense that we had very similar dynamics with our mothers growing up. We were attracted to the same things in college. And both of our work has brought us to really trying to understand what trauma is and how trauma gets stored in the body. And um, it was so good that we had to do two. 
If you would like to support the podcast, uh, I invite you to join my newsletter, if you haven't, at erigazzi.com. I also have two journaling courses that you can check out there as well. And if you think that this podcast will help anyone that you love, please share it with them. And as always, with the infinite cacophony of different things trying to demand your attention, the fact that you are here means more to me than I know my nervous system can even really process. So thank you. I love you. And please enjoy. What do you like to be called? Is it just because Jaggers is such a strong name? Like, do you like it when people call you Jaggers or do you? Dude, you know what's been funny is that since I've been in Austin, so many people have asked me that question. Yeah. And that's really, uh, I've had to sit with that. And especially going to a new place and meeting so many new people, everyone's like, I say Steven. And it just like, people are like, oh, okay. You know, I say Jaggers and people are like, oh, Bruh, yeah. I feel like you're Jaggers. I'm Jaggers. And it's interesting because I'm a junior as well. So my dad's name is Steve as yeah. well. Um, but I feel like people remember Jaggers so much more. So that's what I'm going by now. I thought you meant like title, you know, like no. what do I like to call myself yeah. for, for the work? I was just I thinking do. about how to introduce you, but we're just going to have this be a part of the podcast and Graham will know when to start it. The, like an interesting thing to feel into is one of the things that people who are not in the, you could call it the spiritual community or the conscious community or whatever, what they, one of the things that they mock about what people inside that community do is when people change their names. Mm, and yeah. the interesting thing is there's quite a few aspects of this that I think are worth articulating. And the first one is that every major culture that has had any type of success through history has had some type of initiation ritual. Mm. And one of the common themes in initiation rituals is the changing of a name because it symbolically represents the transformation from one stage of consciousness to the next. And so it seems to be maybe even a archetypical requirement for people to grow. So that's one thing. And then there's this thing that happens that if I've denied the light inside of myself for 25 or 30 years and it slowly made me sick and resentful and angry, and I know that something is wrong and I see someone doing something right, but I'm not ready to change, I have to attack that thing. You know, that the thing that I sense from the people who mock someone that they don't even know having changed their name, you know, I've experienced this with Aubrey. It's like, I look at the judger, you know, and I just feel into the health of their body. Mm. I feel into the health of the type of language that they use to describe their life and their relationships. If I know them at all, I feel into how they treat their friends and their partners and their parents. And the psychological, you know, experience that I have just brings forth this like sadness and compassion where it's like, being so sick that seeing any potential recommendation for what could heal you uh, is just aversive. Mm. And I could go further into this because it's starting to actually spiral some things, but we haven't even introduced you to the audience <laughs> yet. <laughs> yeah, man. Any judgment is judgment of self. You know, your autonomic nervous system doesn't know any difference. 
That's an interesting thing to feel into. Anytime wow. you are, are, are thinking a judgment about another person or you're thinking anger about another person or you have this sort of judgment or you have this sort of, or if um, it's even, even if it's self-talk, or, right. just self-talk, the, the language that's going on in your head, your body doesn't distinguish who you're actually talking about. It's, mm. it's the felt sense in your soma and your body is, is the same. It feels like our somatic body is this like beautiful organic spiraling like keyboard thing yeah and that um if 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 i feel disgusted by you mm-hmm. i'm still hitting the disgust yeah note but the tree or the spiraling keyboard tree it doesn't care where it's being directed this just this is the energy that we're mm-hmm. choosing to play through the nervous system right now yeah. and before this podcast you did probably the best bodywork session that I've had in the sense that it, you got me to play notes that mm. I haven't played in a long time. Like we got to a point where I rage screamed yeah, on the table and I seriously cannot remember the last time that I like raged screamed mm. and I got to like dust the yeah. gunk off of that note, that note that hadn't been wrong in a long time. And I'll kind of use this to like introduce you because we haven't even yeah. introduced you yet is what's really exciting about watching you. And I can't wait to get into your story is that you're not only a trauma informed, like healer, you know, you have done enough of the work where you're like trauma intuitive, Mm. you know, like, so there's this new thing that's happening where a lot of people who are kind of outside of the conventional model of healing, and even now people in the conventional model of healing, they're starting to learn the intricacies of what trauma is and how trauma affects Mm. the organism and the fucking explosive things that can arise in the process of healing someone who has trauma. And there's this movement that's been happening that's called like trauma-informed and then whatever the person is. You, you feel to me like you're trauma-intuitive. And that feels oh, like because that. you've done so much of this work and people will hear the story. But let's say that you just beat Aubrey at pickleball and, <laughs> and I come up to you and I ask you, who are you and what do you do? Mm-hmm. please don't be one of those spiritual people that's like, well, I am just an experience unfolding. Like I, yeah. I know that that's true on some level, but if I fucking came up to you and asked you, who are you and what do you do? If that was your response, I would never talk to you again. So yeah, who are you and what do you do? Mm. Okay. So there's a, there was a lot there. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, first of all, I think I'm actually going to go by Jaggers now. Let's fucking go. That's like, I feel since I've been in Austin for the past week, it's been an incredible initiation and expansion for me and really stepping into obviously the next evolution. It's, it's a, it's the, the next chapter. So, uh, if any of you guys ask my name, I'm going to be going by Jaggers by now, but okay. I'll give you a little bit of background because I don't, I don't think I've actually created a title for what I do. Um, I'm a neuromuscular body worker. Um, I've also studied lots of trauma, gotten into holotropic-ish breath work. Um, you know, I was a personal trainer for a while, so I had that athletic background. 
Uh, but I, I work with people's bodies and looking at them as an instrument. And it's very interesting, you know, kind of what we were talking about as far as, you know, any judgment is self-judgment. There is an innate intelligence within the body that knows that we are all connected. It knows that we are all, um, you know, one unit moving together. And that's the, that's the piece of that. Any judgment is self-judgment because you judge another, you are judging a piece of yourself. Our mind, we've had to, we've had to, you know, go through these, whether it's psychedelic trips or, or mind expansive, um, experiences to convince ourselves mentally that we are all one mm. but the body already recognizes that so my mission i would say is to help people tap into that innate intelligence within the body that knows um it knows exactly what to do and it communicates right. through symptoms and it communicates it's always communicating yes and some people give me the title of healer and i don't necessarily that that one I knew kind of, as it, I said it fucking it, it, it fucking triggers me a little bit, but right. I I will I will take that because I, I think I'm helping people recognize how to heal themselves. You know, we are all healers. We we are all healers. We're repairing our body on a physiological level every day. We're repairing on a cellular level every day. Every you know, moment, yeah. And it, and I give the example: if you were to go to a doctor, say you got a huge cut on your arm. And you were go to you were to go to a doctor. The doctor's not going to heal your cut. He's going to stitch you up, and he's going to put you in position for your body to heal itself. Right. And I think that that's kind of what I do on an on a um, psychosomatic level, or or a, or a mind uh, body emotional level. Is I help you. I I put you in position for you to um, discharge a lot of the stuff that you've been carrying in your body because. 100%. You, you know, you, you may not remember uh, what you've gone through mentally, but your body remembers everything. Yeah. So there's a lot of beautiful <laughs> things that arise uh, as you were sharing. And the first one is what, because of what I've been getting into for the last like two months and people listening to the podcast will know, but it's like, I've, I've really been getting into this thing called existential risk theory. And there's this idea called game A and game B and that game A is essentially the uh, evolutionarily programmed uh, competitiveness of genes competing against other genes for finite mm -hmm. resources in a finite environment and that that's the way that all organ or all mammalian organisms have evolved to try to compete but that because we have culture um, and we got to the point where we now have exponential technology if we don't create a new type of system that actually allows us to not behave in the way that our genes want us to behave if we don't do that, the chances of us self-extincting ourselves um, is very high. And mm -hmm. so that the whole culture that has been created to increase the effectiveness of how our genes compete is kind of game A. And so, you know, that's like Western culture, capitalism, et cetera. And they're not inherently bad. Like they actually yeah. were the best before we got mm -hmm. exponential technology. And that game B is essentially this hypothesis that a group of philosophers are trying to imagine, like what would game B even look like? And that the fundamental metaphor that they use is that uh, 
A cancer cell is a game A cell. A cancer cell has lost its ability to communicate with the cells around it in such a way where it believes it's alone. Mm -hmm. And because it believes it's alone, it will maximize for its own growth at the expense of the whole organism and it eventually will destroy the whole organism. And that a healthy cell is the perfect example of what a game B type organ organization would be, which is the ability, the innate intelligence of the cell to understand that it is a unique and individual component of a collective that mm -hmm. it serves because if it did not serve it, it would die. And I've been going deep into that idea, but one of the things that I feel that it's changed in me is whenever I'm like driving or I'm uh, happen to be in like a grocery store at like 5 p.m., which is like the worst time to ever be at a grocery store, and I see someone who in the past, before I started the spiritual path at all, would have generated either disgust or like this like um, pity that once I started the spiritual path, it would be this overwhelming sense of like sadness slash compassion. What I can feel I've been doing intuitively the last couple of uh, weeks is I'll feel that like pity mm. and then I'll feel the compassion. And then I'm purposefully like imagining, like sending so much love to their like genetic code where I imagine it's like starting to like sparkle and shimmer and things are starting mm. to turn online that will help that human start to hear its inner whisper a little bit more. Because one of the things that like I've paid lip service to for five or six years is we're all one. Yeah. Um, but I still don't relate to people outside of my tribe like that. Mm. And one of the things that I've been feeling into is like, that's a sick cell and we are the same body. And so I can feel that based off of what you shared, I'm touching this new note that is actually healing me on a level that I'm not aware of where it's like, this is the note of like epiphanous awe connection to the inner whisper that knows exactly how to be. And the other thing, and it's why, of course, you work with trauma, is it seems to be um, the way Gabor Mate defines what trauma is. And he just released a documentary that came out like six days ago called um, The Wisdom of Trauma. Mm. And I've watched it twice now. And like essentially what he says is that trauma is the learned coping behavior that in order to survive, we have to abandon ourselves and that we abandon ourselves by not listening to our gut instinct. Because at some point listening to the gut instinct would have caused you to basically be exiled or killed, you know, like mm -hmm. as like a child and that all trauma work on some level is to help people move through the pain that they experienced as a child that taught them that they couldn't connect to their gut and then giving them a container to work through it, which then allows them to begin to connect to that inner intelligence, that gut intuition that will ultimately, I believe, and I can feel that you believe, will take care of them. And so it's like trauma workers are really like uh, doulas. You know, yeah, like we are, we're, we're midwives and Stan Groff has actually used that term quite a bit. 
Right. And so that's what I feel you mm-hmm. articulating when you're like, the word healer triggers me. I'm more of a, you know, help the birthing mother put her hips in the right position, help her put her yeah. spine in the right position, help her do the breathing so that she can give birth. I'm holding the container for you to remember or to, for you to to access that innate intelligence and and remember that your body knows exactly what to do. And, you know, you, you touched on so much there. I think that, you know, oh, yeah, there's so many ways we could go with that. I think that all life on a very fundamental level is striving for equilibrium, mm. striving for balance on a physical level, on an emotional level, on a spiritual level. Um, and also, you know, at the same time as striving for equilibrium, it's also striving for growth. Exactly. And a big piece of trauma, you know, trauma is guaranteed in this lifetime. It's like death, taxes, and trauma. <laughs> it's yeah. guaranteed. And, and if we look at trauma, trauma's, I think its purpose is to find a new adaptive response or it is to grow exactly. as a, as a collective. And there is a piece where it's, 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 it's very difficult to work with trauma from the rational mind because Sometimes, well, I believe that a lot of the times people's trauma is the necessary resistance that allows them to grow. Right. And when we kind of quote unquote like fix somebody or try to um, help them in a capacity where uh, they don't actually, you know, sustainable change happens from the inside out. It has to come from the inside. And so I don't always know if I'm, if what I'm doing is robbing them of their own growth. I hear you. You know, you don't, you don't necessarily know. And there's an aspect of when we, a lot of, a lot of people want to help people, but we don't know necessarily if what we're doing is actually helping them or actually enabling them or, or, you know, potentially robbing them of their growth. And you know, the concept of reenactment, which I know you've touched on is, is very interesting because a lot of the times people, you know, will have this traumatic thing happen to you. And to quote Gabor Mate, it's, you know, trauma is not necessarily the thing that happens to you, but it's the response inside of you that happens when something happens to you. And what happens inside of you is a defense mechanism which comes from that innate intelligence of your body it's 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 a it's it's a beautiful thing you know and but that defense system doesn't just turn off and what happens at one point it like if you take example for for example like if if you know say someone had sexual trauma at a young age during that event their you know i would call it probably their soul or you know the deepest aspects of themselves leave because they can't handle it they leave they check out the parts of themselves leave and they're not able to fully experience that which is a protective mechanism it's a beautiful thing to have the the um, consciousness of this person just straight leave during that event because they can't handle it but then over time that defense system just it doesn't just go away and then later on in life 
you know, maybe that pattern is still there and perhaps they have a partner that they're trying to be intimate with and that pattern is reoccurring where they continue to leave as soon as they start to get intimate and they can't actually be present there. So at once that defense system, that innate intelligence was, was, um, helpful. And then in another part later on down the line, it can be the exact thing that blocks you from being able to relate. Right. One of the physiological instincts of any mammal that at any point in its evolutionary history was a prey animal, one of its instincts is called the immobilization response. And it's to completely freeze all Mm -hmm. the muscles and that um, it, it tends to only happen when the prey animal is completely overwhelmed by a predator and there's a bunch of there's four specific evolutionarily adaptive functions for why that is the best move for the body to do when it feels like it can't run or fight and that one of these psychological responses to that immobilization response is disassociation yeah and that the really interesting thing about our physiology is that if our consciousness or if our conscious mind or if our story-making mind didn't get in the way, Mm -hmm. the intelligence of the animal body after, if it survives that type of attack, will go somewhere safe and will essentially start to seizure. Like, and and there's videos online of mammals doing this that survive. And it's the discharging, seizuring Mm -hmm. experience that actually tells the instinctual system that locked everything that it's safe to unlock. Yeah. And in humans, because we have this really intricate, like story making part of our consciousness, um, we have the ability to begin to do behaviors to run away from the completion of the cycle, because the completion of the cycle requires the full processing of the emotion or the energy mm-hmm. that was present at the moment of locking up. And like I would deeply recommend anyone who wants to get kind of a full experience of the symptoms of having that locking system still activated to check out the What is Trauma podcast because it goes through. It was one of my favorite works of yours, brother. Thank you, man. It, it, yeah. it, it by far is the most popular thing that I've ever created. It clearly is touching on something that is alive for most people. <clears throat> but that if you have the symptoms uh, listed out in that podcast, that is your nervous system telling you, I saved your life at some point much earlier in your life, and you haven't allowed me to rest. Mm-hmm. And I need you to help me rest. And if you don't actively engage in the practices that will help you release it, that's when you get the reenactment symptom. And this was one of the most interesting parts in my personal research on trauma is that I have this idea that the innate intelligence inside of you is like what the Greeks call the daemon. And the daemon is this guardian spirit that knows your destiny, that walks this life with you. And the ego is terrified of the daemon at the beginning of our lives because the daemon is going to essentially ask you to make the transformations that you need to make to become, you know, the oak tree that the acorn is meant to be. And that it's the daemon 
it seems like, that will bring you to reenactment experiences, not because it's trying to hurt you again, but it's, it's trying to get you to unlock the lock by re by coming back to the initial energetic locking moment and to bring the resources that you have now as an adult to feel fully what you weren't capable of feeling when you were younger. But the really interesting thing about trauma man is that if you do that, even with a practitioner and you don't do it well, if the practitioner is not intuitive and sensitive and capable, you can actually re-traumatize. Absolutely. And it makes it go deeper. And it's why uh, Peter Levine's felt sense seems to be like the best tool that I have found in the trauma healing modalities because it's the most gentle, yet it also teaches the required internal resource, which is can you connect to the part of your consciousness that literally is capable of holding anything and simply notice what you are feeling without judging what you are feeling? And they have this complementary technique called titration, where as you move into feeling your nervous system starting to really turn on in the presence of the memory or in the presence of a stimuli that's bringing you back to the initial moment of locking, they also will have you work with simultaneously either like a super beautiful image or like something that happened in a dream with you once or like a internal place that you can imagine that is the most peaceful. And whenever you get overwhelmed, you then titrate over to, they'll start to ask you questions like, can you see that beach? Mm. Can you feel the water lapping on your legs? Can you feel the sun? And as soon as you feel safe again, they then bring you back to the whatever the thing is. And there tends, you know, and I'm sure that you've seen this over and over in your breath work, work but um, people will have their somatic releases. And we can go down this rabbit hole, but I'm, I'm really curious, like, what is your story that brought you to even doing this work? You know, so the story is like, tell us about your trauma yeah, as a child. Absolutely, man. And you're tripping over trying to figure out what was wrong and then finding clearly some practices that have helped. Yeah, brother. Um, I resonate deeply with the Damon aspect and, and, you know, in, in schools of thought, there is this aspect of where you, you kind of choose your parents based on what you want to bring into this world. I think you kind of choose the traumas that you go undergo to develop enough, um, resilience and enough, um, capacity to carry load, you know, cause and there's something that I feel called to bring here because I've, I've heard that perspective and there's a part of me that resonates with that perspective and i also have someone very close to me Mm -hmm. that whenever i offer that perspective their vicious self-defending anger Mm -hmm. is like fuck you fuck you for even suggesting i don't tell other people that but that is the story that i choose to run in my consciousness because it has helped me right it's helped me cope you know that's that's the that's the story and it also helps me to just remember what i am bringing into the world so you know i'll just get into it i mean both my parents i'm an only child 
both my parents were severe drug addicts from before I was born and very traumatized individuals. You know, they, they, they went under, undergone a lot of trauma and a lot of hard street drugs, meth, cocaine. You know, I'm, I'm pretty sure my mom um, was addicted to that when I was born and probably before I was born. And the, the toll that that takes on your body and your developmental stages is, you know, you can't really, you can't even really explain it, but you know, both my parents were heavily addicted to drugs and, you know, they eventually got off drugs a, a little bit after I was born, at least hard street drugs and started, you know, uh, switching to prescription medication. And there was a piece of me that knew when I was very young that there, that this things weren't right. You know, I knew that something was wrong. Um, and you know, I, 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 I didn't really have a bad childhood. They did the best that they could, you know, they went to rehab and, um, you know, tried to make changes, but I could just tell that they were hurt. You know, I watched my mom specifically really suffer, really suffer from anxiety and depression. And, and, uh, my dad, you know, a workaholic, but also a very angry alcoholic. And I just knew there was an intelligence within inside of me that knew something was wrong. And I always wanted to help them so much. Um, you know, I grew up very physically active in sports and, and uh, I, I could tell there was something wrong with my body, too. I um, I was very mentally sharp, but my body just was not as fast as I wanted it to be, is not as strong. I ended up feeling, you know, when I was about 17, uh, right before graduating high school, I could feel this blockage in my spine, mm-hmm. right around my solar plex region. And it was just incredibly tight. And I, I always kind of ran, like I was made fun of when I, w- when I was running, like uh, playing basketball and playing baseball, like I always ran really funny. Um, and I was kind of unorthodox in my movement, but I was still very athletic. Um, but I could feel this blockage in my solar plexus in my spine and I ended up getting it checked out and I had, uh, you know, some scoliosis and some fusing um, within my thoracic region. Wow. And, you know, if you know anything about, you know, your, your, your solar plexus, or maybe you want to say your, your, your solar plexus chakra or the nerve ganglia, the nerve bundle in that, that area of your body, um, it is correlated to your, your fire perhaps, or your, you know, your adrenal system, you know, people that are addicted to stimulants specifically, a lot Mm. of the times will burn out their fire. Um, and that's, I know my parents were heavily addicted to stimulants and I know it developmentally caused me to have Mm. that sort of blockage within my solar plexus. And probably there was some emotional stuff that, uh, when I was younger, that not feeling safe and kind of closing off as well. Um, but it really, it really kind of rocked my world knowing that like there was some fusing within my spine and I continued to just, you know, live normally. I really wasn't pain, but I could feel that blockage there. And uh, when I graduated from high school, I eventually wanted to go to school for uh, psychology because I think it was probably because I, w- I wanted to help my mom. I, I wanted Same. I studied uh, uh, you know addiction psychology and and I also was very physically active so I wanted to study physical therapy too I couldn't decide between the two of them um, physical therapy with meaning like very body oriented psychology meaning very like mentally oriented and you know I was I was fucking around in college so I, I ended up uh, dropping out 
Uh, I couldn't just, I couldn't pay attention. I think learning from books was really hard for me. And I ended up, uh, you know, just kind of going on this little journey and fucking off for a few years. And I, and I came back and I, my, my back started really hurting again. And I tried a couple different modalities, but massage therapy and body work specifically was the thing that helped me the most in my own pain. And so I was like, shit, I, I need a lot of this. Like, and I couldn't afford it. I was like, you know, I, I think I'd actually be really good at this as well. So I ended up going to school for um, body work and I ended up going to a, a holistic school that studied energetic body work and, you know, had, had a lot of uh, somatic influences to it, polarity therapy, cranial sacral therapy. Um, there was, they, they did a really good job integrating like Eastern uh, thought philosophy and Western thought philosophy. And going through that schooling, I think was um, a lot for myself. It was a healing process for myself. And I think that's very, uh, very true for a lot of people. The, the, the thing that you're bringing to the world is usually the thing that you need the most. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I went to school there. I, I ended up um, uh, becoming a, a, an LMT, a, a body worker, and, you know, um, studying a lot of the somatic aspects of it, you know, how the body stores um, trauma within, its bo- with, within the body energetically. And I ended up becoming a, a teacher there not, not soon after that. Um, and then I started getting really into the psychedelic space as well too, because I feel like that was helping me a lot as well. You know, the, the body work was helping me on a physical, physical level. And then the psychedelic space was helping me kind of understand and, and repattern a lot of things and, um, go into the story. Also, also physically releasing a lot of shit too. That was a huge breakthrough with, with psychedelics. And I ended up working for, um, a nonprofit organization called MAPS. Um, which I'm sure a lot of the listeners are, are um, familiar with. And I worked the Psychedelic Science Conference in 2017. Um, actually, the first time I met Aubrey, too. But uh, I, I went to a workshop by Stan Groff, mm. and I, I took his holotropic workshop. Mm-hmm. And I was just fucking blown away by just breath work and how much I released during that session. And I had been working on aligning people's physical bodies so much and still having an understanding, you know, I was um, kind of a somatic body worker, but really I, w- I was aligning people's physical bodies and I, and I got so sick of working on people's physical bodies and um, them coming back to me with the same fucking thing over and over and over again. And so I really went deep into studying this holotropic breath work um, and trauma itself. And now I've kind of bridged the two of them together. And I, I do mostly, you know, holotropic breath work because that's kind of where uh, what I'm interested in bringing to the world and, and what I've seen the most um, like uh, psychosomatic release for people. And it's very interesting because I think that like, and the more I study breath work specifically, because breath work, there's so many different types and there's a lot of science coming out that holotropic uh, breath work is not necessarily, it's not necessarily good for your system. It's not like you're, a lot of people say you're hyper oxygenating your system, but you're actually not, you're taking in so much oxygen that you're actually not even able to absorb it. And you're actually depleting yourself of oxygen. 
Um, but you're taking when when you are in this hyperventilation state, you're taking someone's nervous system into a traumatic state. It's mimicking what's going on in a traumatic state, and therefore during this you know session people's bodies are mimicking that of a traumatic state and therefore it opens up this portal for them to be able to discharge through expressions through crying through yelling through screaming through shaking um the stuck energy that is that we were talking about earlier and that discharge uh, during this you know portal that we've opened you know sending people into this kind of traumatic state allows them to you know, discharge, which is the signal to their own nervous system that it's okay to relax. Right. That it's okay, you're safe. Right. That it's the signal to the to the soma or the body or the animal, if you will, um, that it's okay to relax. And and I in my own practice, I was doing a lot of one-on-one sessions with breath work um, with a lot of my body work clients. And I would do the breath work session first, and then I would, you know, get to a lot of the deeper emotional um, nervous system release. And then it's like, okay, now we did that. Now let's align your physical body. Right. So I don't remember the question you asked, but I know it's went beautiful. On and there's a couple of things that arise. The first is that if we go back to that metaphor of your nervous system being like an instrument. Yeah. And that the instrument um depending on what notes you touch uh whatever memories you have that are associated with that note will be activated when that note's played and there's something like a like turning up or down the frequency of a wave that if you make the wave super 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 fast that's something like your nervous system being in its most activated state mm-hmm. And that anyone who has trauma, um, you are going to have very likely um, the traumatic memories associated with your nervous system getting that activated. And because we've evolved to conserve energy and to be safe primarily, that our default will be do whatever you need to do by whatever means necessary to not be in that frequency. Because when we're in that frequency, our memory of it is this is the worst possible thing that's ever happened. And so people you know, will create their addictions and their coping behaviors and their avoidant behaviors so that they don't move into that space. And that it seems to be the fundamental healing because of the neurology that we described earlier that you actually, in order to complete the instinctive uh, survival system that immobilized you at some previous point in your life, in order to complete it, you have to go through that discharge. That holotropic breath work will bring your nervous system back to that high, high mm-hmm. frequency. And there's something about it being in community. Yeah, and the hearing, group sessions are, are very powerful. And hearing other people scream. Yeah almost gives you permission like oh i can do whatever my body is asking me to do like one of the mm-hmm. things that you were doing with me in the breath in the body work session that we did is you were incredibly intuitive of what type of sounds i needed to make and mm-hmm. once i started to make them you could feel that i wasn't going as deep as i could and you would actually start to make the sound more deeply than i was making yep. it and then my nervous system intuitively just like 
it's it's like it defaulted into going deeper. Yeah. And that there's something about the communal aspect to the breath work. There's a lot there. There's a lot there. So first of all, the idea of self-help is it's bullshit. I, I love the motherfucking uh, quote that you put up on Instagram like two months ago. That I don't even remember what it was. But. Everyone was sharing it. Yeah. Because, and I remember when I read it, I was like, oh, he fucking knocked this out of the park. It's yeah. like the idea of self-help is dead. It's, it's dead. Not, it's, it, healing happens in community. Healing happens in community and trauma also happens. Trauma doesn't happen when you're by yourself. So therefore healing needs... To, Trauma doesn't happen when you're alone. Trauma, so therefore- It happens in relationship. It happens therefore. in relationship, exactly. So therefore healing needs to happen in relationship and collective healing happens um, when we do these bigger sessions. And it, it's, it's, so, it's so powerful. And I, I'll, I'll get back to that, but specifically with the session with you is that in relationship, I'm doing a session with you. I have to maintain rapport. So I have to maintain- I, it's co-regulation. So I'm maintaining almost a similar nervous system state as what you're going through. And therefore, when we link up on that same you know, frequency, you could say, whatever starts to move from that space, I will take you 10% deeper into whatever expression wants to come up. And that, that 10%, it's not 40, because if I were to go 40%, I would break rapport and that would shock your nervous system. Interesting. So I, t I, raise, you, I raise you 10% in whichever sort of direction you're going with that discharge or with that expression, and that allows you or gives you permission to go further into it. it so if you're did. making a noise, I'm gonna match you and I'm gonna raise you 10% from that and it gives your system um, permission to go deeper into it and to complete that feedback loop yeah so especially with the group sessions people being on their own journey in their own place by themselves and hearing other people yell and scream and and and, and be very or perhaps you know there's some sadness that comes through it's really powerful because we we hide a lot of that from each other especially with with like instagram and there was a a really powerful session i did um if i may tell a little story yeah, yeah. so uh two weeks ago i did a really powerful session there was a, a woman who is a a doctor came up to me before this this group uh breathwork session and you know there was 30 pe about 30 people in this group breathwork session she came up to me um before the session and she said, I'm kind of having a panic attack right now. Do you think this is still good for me? And I, I looked at her and her eyes were bulging, you know, typical trauma signs, the hypervigilance. Um, and uh, I was like, okay, um, I had to make kind of an executive decision there whether or not she should do it. And, and I looked at her, I was like, you know what, I'm, you're here. I think you should go through with it, but just know to be gentle with yourself. And I told the other practitioners not to touch her, not to go to her, let her have her own experience. She, within the first half, it was, it was one of the loudest groups I've ever done. People were fucking yelling, screaming. Um, there was a lot of pain you could feel in the room and she, she couldn't close her eyes which is a, a, um, a sign that someone doesn't feel safe and they're in that kind of trauma response. So I'd go and she, she wanted to get up like, you know, 10, 15 minutes in it. And I was like, it's, it's okay, you're safe here. You know, I tried to help her calm her nervous system a little bit. And she just, I could tell she did not want to go through with it. 
And then during kind of the second half, she started to get into it. And I could tell there was some sort of shift that happened. Um, but in the end, she ended up sharing. And she is a pain specialist doctor. So basically what that means is that she, you know, provides, um, you know, numbing mechanisms for people that are in pain, injections. And she said it was so powerful for her to hear everyone in their own pain and yelling and screaming and everyone around her and that she couldn't go around and help people aka she couldn't go around and numb everybody she had to sit there and listen to people in their pain and it was incredibly powerful for her because she realized at that point that it's okay for people to feel pain and they need to go through that and i don't know what that did for her career i mean there's there's a, a, a powerful aspect of that, you know, Western medicine numbing people. There's, time, there's a time and a place for that, but I think our default setting needs to shift yeah. to be able to hold space and be able to hold a container for people to actually feel that pain and not numb it. And something that comes up is if we connect to what we said at the beginning of the podcast about anything that you do to others is something that you're doing to yourself. If you put on the lens <sighs> of the mythical... And you look at different occupations. Mm -hmm. If you look at someone who is a who is in the Western health model and their entire occupation is to numb from a mythical lens, like that is someone who has so much pain mm. from something. Yeah. Brother. And very likely it's they had a parent who was in so much pain and they just wanted their parent to not be in pain. And so they would help their parent do whatever type of numbing behaviors they had. And then they become that to hundreds or thousands of people. And if you feel into like the nervous system uh, karmic load that that type of soul takes on in their nervous system that uh no wonder yeah her first response was a panic attack because yeah. her coping behavior for decades was to uh feel safe by numbing other nervous systems and one of the things that i connected to in a breath work session um probably about eight months ago is I was able to touch for the first time in my life the part of my nervous system that holds the memory of all the suffering for the people I've held space for. That in my entire life, I've always had the story that I don't take on other people's energy. And I don't experience my nervous system as if I take on other people's energy. But clearly, there is a part of my nervous system that in order to even be empathetic to someone who has trauma has to touch that place with them and so i could feel that it was like an infinite well of grief that i would never get to the bottom of but that the breath work helped me connect to like i just let a little bit of the air in that well evaporate and that story comes up because if i connect to that woman like the amount of gunk that she has unknowingly put into other people's nervous system to help protect them. Um, there's some part of her nervous system that has all that gunk. And that, of course, 
you know, it's like, I don't want to go into that part of the experience. Yeah. People ask me that a lot. You know, I hold these, these sessions in these containers for people to release and they're like, how do you not take on people's shit? And I'm like, well, you know, that's a, that's a hard question. I mean, I think partially because I've, I've, uh, I've experienced very dark times with my parents. You know, I've, I've, uh, I've watched my mom try to commit suicide multiple times and overdose on drugs and, and so much dark stuff. And, and there's an aspect of that, you know, that's a piece of it, but I think as a collective, we're incredibly fragile. Our nervous systems have become incredibly fragile. And for us to be able to just sit with somebody who's in a painful place, we don't, we don't, we can't handle it. We want them to no, shut up, stop. You know, even kids, like they start yelling, they start screaming or shaking their body. The first thing we say is, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that anymore. I can't handle it. And you one know? of the things that Gabor Mate tries to let people understand is that you don't have to have something dramatic happen to yeah. you for it to be traumatic. It's that it's, it's, every um, time that you had an authentic mm -hmm. expression that you were taught to, yeah. to not express, yep. you take on a small piece of like energetic trauma. Exactly. And that all of us, all of us have. By it. the time that we arrive at being a 20-year-old, oh, yeah. how many times in your life did you feel a authentic expression that you disassociated from or denied? Yeah. And we all have this accumulation of that like gunk. Yeah. And it's why like, you know, I think most men go most of their lives not crying. And I went most of my life not crying until I really started to connect to the, the wisdom of plant medicines. And now I'm crying like at, at some point, almost every day. And I can feel that every time I cry, it's like I'm just getting away a little bit of the mud yeah. that I've accumulated for almost 30 years. And I don't know when I will ever get to the bottom of that. And I don't know if... You, you know what you want, brother. Right. You and won't. then it's not the... You know, like a part of savoring the human experience is that when grief touches you or when mm -hmm. awe or gratitude touches you, it feels like tears are a way to celebrate. Like yeah. tears are like, I'm so fucking alive right now. Wow. Yeah. To have tears is to be sensitive, you know, is, and, and to be sensitive is to be more alive. To be sensitive is to be full of sense, to be full of sensory awareness and we are full spectrum beings. This, this, this life that we have is, is meant for us to feel. We're meant to experience the full spectrum. And if we cut ourselves off at any place within that full spectrum of being able to feel things, we cut ourselves off to the rest of it. Right. And with that discharge. And, and that's actually technically neurologically true. Yes. That if you have some heavy grief that you disassociate from, they actually have looked at studies that your ability to neurologically experience a peak positive emotion mm -hmm. is stunted to the degree that you won't allow yourself to feel the depth of the negative emotion. Yeah, exactly. We are, you know, we are essentially a verb, you know, everything is a verb. There's no such thing as a noun, you know, I'm, I, uh, you're, you're not Eric, you know, you, you are Eric Ng, 
And that is changing all the time. So based on all the things that are happening to you and you're processing all of these um, circumstances and events and everything that, you know, you're a filter and it, and it all runs through you. And then it comes back out as this, you know, we could say as a discharge or we could say as an expression. And we look at trauma and, and stress, it's, it's very similar to the same thing, you know, um, Trauma, like Gabor Mate says, it's subjective, meaning that what's traumatic to you might not be traumatic to me based on our circumstances and our level of resilience and, and uh, you know, our upbringing. But, you know, if we, if we look at, you know, stress and trauma, a little, like, a little bit of it or certain amounts of it create growth, just like we were talking about reenactment. It creates growth. It's just like working out, you know. You need that sort of stress to be able to grow, to be able to hold more capacity, to be able to hold more load. But if you look at stress, which, you know, chronic stress is the number one killer, stress is really pressure. And I say this so much, people are probably sick of hearing it, but stress is pressure, you know, pressure from the world, these different sort of pressures that have been put on you to sit down, shut up, don't move, don't express yourself. And so, how, you know, stress is pressure. How do we get rid of that pressure? We have to X the pressure. We have to express. We are expression vessels. Some of the most stressed out people in our, in our world have found beautiful ways to channel that into expressions, whether it's music, whether it's art, whether it's you know, businesses that have helped lots of people. And if we don't express, then we suppress. And when we suppress, we eventually become depressed or repressed or oppressed or all those negative pressure words where it starts to calcify and densify into some sort of physical sort of dis-ease. So like ex expression, I think is expression and connection, expression and relation. Those are, in my opinion, um, the purpose of why we are here and to find your expression and to take the traumatic and the 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 stress the the stressors of life and be able to alchemize it and turn it into something that that is a beautiful expression for the rest of the world to um enjoy or to better each other you know we right. talked about um you know competition or capitalism if you will and with the intention of competition and, and, and capitalism in itself, if it's conscious, it's helping each other grow. Right. It's, it's, it's helping push each other to become the best versions of, of each other that we can. And on that, it's like we have, you know, we have two different types of vision. And we could say this is like a mental vision or actual like, you know, physiological vision is that we have – you know, we have focal vision. And I think in our culture, we are very stuck in this focal vision where a lot of practitioners in all different areas are very specialized. You know, we have a, a knee specialist, a gastroenterologist, uh, um, and all these different specializations, which are beautiful. We need those. And people, those specialists usually tend to make the most money. And we also have, you know, what's the opposite of specialization is generalization or, or holistic, if you will. And I think that as a specialist myself, um, or if you are a specialist in some sort of capacity, you know, specialization is your expression in whichever route you are taking. We need to maintain a holistic paradigm within that, that specialization. Absolutely. The vision that's coming up for me is 
There's a psychologist named Bill Plotkin that I've been really excited about for the last couple of months. Yes. And I see you nodding your head. Yeah, yeah. And um, one of the things that he talks about is that soul Soul craft is not a spiritual function that soul is an ecological function and if you Mm. feel into it for a moment there is a singular collective intelligence that you could call gaia like it is it is the energy that has manifested all life on this planet and it's it's being expressed out of this orb that we're on and that if you see Gaia as this like vast intelligence that's connected to every single expression of life that is on the planet. Each time a new organism is birthed, it seems to be, especially because if you believe that the shape of something is a representation of the type of energy it is, there's this belief that the most enlightened type of beings, the way that they manifest in three-dimensional reality is as spheres. And so Gaia might be this incredibly, incredibly advanced type of intelligence and that it intuitively can feel what the next iteration of every life form that's being birthed needs to or could become to bring more orb harmony like spherical wholeness to it and so i think that that is a way to transpose onto this belief that you're born with a destiny and that the destiny is actually a expression of the intelligence of gaia feeling into in the tapestry that is the spherical intelligence on this planet what parts of the fabric need to either be replaced or what parts of the entire fabric of life on this planet need to be changed and that each of us in the same way that an oak or in the same way that an acorn has this blueprint inside of it that knows that it's meant to become an oak tree it doesn't mean it will but it's meant to it feels like we are born with a knowing of how we could fit into this next iteration of the Gaian intelligence And that what gives you your gifts, your superpowers, are the wounds that you incur. Mm -hmm. Every single exceptional person I have ever met, their gifts are the direct response in their personal transformation from their personal wounds or their personal traumas. And that it seems to be that the I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to word this it seems to be that the um the responsibility of humans is because we are a unique expression of this gaian intelligence because of what we're able to do with our minds that if we didn't have free will or choice or the ability to know the future and the past and to make different choices all we would have to do is figure out that expression by healing our trauma. And I think that that's the fundamental first half Mm -hmm. of life. Yeah. But that the thing that I'm starting to feel coming into my awareness is it's, okay, once you've 
began to alchemize enough of your trauma to begin to express authentically in a world in the world and to provide whatever your expression is as medicine okay now you're entering into just beginning to be an adult mm-hmm. and now the actual adult function of a of a human is okay gaia needs our help yeah gaia needs our help in a real way that it feels like one of the things that I've been struggling with the last two months is essentially all my dreams and all my aspirations were because I thought helping people heal and then finding their true expression was the, f- was the fullest expression of life. That like, that's the best thing that could possibly happen. And the thing that feels heavy, that also feels like it's not in alignment with the current like conscious or spiritual community is that what Bill Plotkins would propose is that's just the completion of adolescence that he has this developmental model that's like a wheel and there's two stages for childhood two stages for adolescence two stages for adulthood and two stages for elderhood that the healing of yourself enough to find your genuine expression that that's just completing adolescence and that adulthood and elderhood is to essentially begin to heal individuals in the culture in such a way that transforms the culture in such a way where we come back into alignment and become stewards of nature. Mm. You know, because like one of the things to feel into that's been heavy for me is it's like if I heal my trauma and I find my true expression, and I create my family, and I help people heal their trauma and find their true expression, and things don't fundamentally change in a really dramatic way in the way that we organize ourselves at the highest collective and at a civilizational level, the chances of my grandchildren having grandchildren feel very low because of either atomic holocaust, full ecological collapse, biomedical slash warfare or the creation of AI. And that, that's what these existential risk theorists are talking about. And I can feel that there's this like, I thought to win the game of life, I had to be good at checkers. <clears throat> and yeah. now it feels like what my soul is calling me to is it's like, you know that type of Chinese chess where there's like eight players? Oh yeah. I'm starting to see that that's actually the thing. And the thing that I struggle with that I would love your feedback on is whenever I start to like touch on this feeling that I've been feeling the last couple of months, it feels like the reaction that I get from peers who have found their place where they can express authentically and they have enough money and they have enough status where they feel comfortable. There's this pushback on like, you're overthinking it or to even think that it's like that is you're succumbing to the ego or you're getting lost in the blah, blah, blah. Or, you know, if you just do your thing, it'll take care of the whole thing. It feels like what I'm currently struggling with is that the reflection that I get from most people that feel like they could be my allies in trying to say yes to a much larger Mm. problem set they're basically saying like there's no problem there there's no problem there and i've personally have been struggling 
in my life in the last couple of months because it feels like um, I, I had this super clear moment a couple of weeks ago where it was like, wow, I have achieved the goals that I had when I was 19. Like I truly feel seen by people that I care about. I have found a way to express myself in the world in such a way where I don't have to worry about money. And I feel fucking fulfilled. And now it feels like, and this is again because I read Bill Plotkins, one of the things that he talks about is the moment that you have that feeling, which most people don't get until their mid-40s and some people might not get it until they die, that that's when your soul, which is a function of the Gaian intelligence that knows mm -hmm. what your purpose is that's actually in accord with nature, is like the ego is finally strong enough for me to pull it down into the underworld and teach it what it's actually supposed to be doing here. Mm. And so it feels like the healing of the adolescent stage of consciousness requires the processing of trauma and the finding your genuine expression. And then that's to basically set you up to then be dragged into the underworld so that you can find what your soul expression is and one of the things that Bill Plotkins talks about whenever he teaches this model to people about these like eight stages, and he talks about, um, he calls it the journey to soul initiation. When you've completed adolescence and you're finally moving into adulthood, that that's, it's not the dark night of the soul. It's like two or three years of being in the underworld and that that's the caterpillar transforming in the cocoon to a butterfly. That when he teaches that model, Almost everyone who hears it is like, oh yeah, I had my cocoon moment when I was like 21 or 24 or 30 or whatever. And he said that um, almost everyone that he's ever taught this to thought they had already gone through their cocoon moment, but hadn't. That a caterpillar will go through what's called moltings, which is when it gets too big for its like exoskeleton and then it breaks out of it mm -hmm. and becomes even a bigger caterpillar. And that to a caterpillar, that seems like the cocoon transformation moment. Yeah. But um, it feels like I am beginning to go into my like descent and that this, like, that the healing of trauma and the finding your true expression, I thought that was the whole game. It's stage one, brother. It's, it's stage one oh, through four, which yeah, is the first four, half. Yeah. Right. And, and, and that's been fucking me up. Yeah, bro. There's a, I, lot there. I, I, there's a lot there, man. And I think, whew, thank you for articulating that in such a beautiful way because um, I, can, I can relate so much. Um, I think as a culture, most of humanity doesn't even go through that first one through four. And that's what he says. Stage. He says that something like 80 to 90% of people get stuck yeah. at stage three. Yeah, they, they, I think that that is... Uh, you know, the, the first chapter, the first hero's journey that you go through is to identify your core wounding, identify the traumas, you know, the, the shadow aspects of yourself and, and um, be able to transform that into some sort of expression out into the world and, and it be in alignment with helping the community as a whole, we all want to feel like we are, um, you know, supporting the tribe and, 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 a, and an essential part of our community. Um, and then after that, you know, journey, which I think that I'm coming up on as well, you start another hero's journey. 
And then it's like, and what you said about, you know, destiny and your, your potentiality. I think that inside of you, you, you know, there's a deep gnosis of your potential and what is possible on your timeline. This, you know, this time around is Eric Godzi and this, um, this meets you and yeah. there's a deep knowing of what your potential is. And you've, you know, you've proved to yourself that you've gone through, you know, a significant chapter or a significant cycle within that. And now it's like, okay, you did that. Let's, are you ready to go on the next, yeah. the next chapter towards that, that destiny and that potentiality. And that's probably on bigger platforms and bigger places and like i was saying to have this holistic paradigm and holistic paradigm is to you know sort of like the the how the native americans say where you make decisions based on seven generations in the future you know it's not just helping people in this lifetime you know um, overcome their trauma and find their expression it's like how do we set up the world in a symbiotic cyclical nature where um we are able to do this um within the the lifetimes ahead of us for our children for our right. children's children and you know, i think in this lifetime there's there's lots of existential issues coming <laughs> and uh and as a collective i think a lot of the people that have gone through that you know first stage one through four and found their expression and have been able to help people in some sort of capacity it's like it doesn't stop there we we, we you know once you do that we have to continue and to move on to the next chapter and then, and then after that one there's probably an, another one as well and it's 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 getting used to there never being a finish line. Right. You know? Yeah. The way that he vaguely maps out, cause I haven't dove in deep into the, into the two stages of adulthood and the two stages mm-hmm. of elderhood. But it seems to be that the function of the two stages of adulthood is you then become a steward mm-hmm. for the healing of the younger generations to move through the stages and yeah. to contribute to the health and the slow adaptation of culture to be more in alignment with what Gaia wants from it. And then by the time you move into elderhood, it's like, I'm not even worried about the culture. I'm I'm just being in sync with nature and I'm here as a touch point to the young and to the transitioning and to be, and that we don't even, that that's not even a part of the hero's journey because we haven't had a culture that's been healthy enough to even have that as a consistent force Mm -hmm. in the culture and i can feel that we're uh graham gave me the heads up and we're actually coming to the end of our time let's keep going fuck it and um (laughs) would you be able to come back for a part two before you leave what what time so yeah what i think that that we should do is i think that we should close this as a part one. Yeah, there's then, a huge piece to this though that I think that just we need to ca- like at least leave a little bit of a cliffhanger. Please. Yeah, and that there's this big movement towards ancestral healing, mm-hmm. and that's a big buzzword that's going on right now. And and 
and you start to if you spend enough time in this trauma space you start to understand that all all trauma is ancestral yeah it's all passed down but ancestral healing is not just healing the past generations 100%. ancestral healing is setting up systems that heals ancestrally into the future yes so we'll leave it there motherfucking part one <laughs> is a wrap we've got a part let's two let's go let's go thank you so much brother Absolutely.